Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon Cinema at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org, where you can get tickets to upcoming showings. You can even rent the Trilon uh, and a bunch of other cool ways to support the Trilon, like merch and club memberships and really cool stuff. My name is Jason Daphnis. Uh, I hate grandma's stupid pies, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I've got to stop acting like such a clown and get back to my books. I'm Harry Mackin, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. Uh, and I'm Aaron, and flying used to be fun until I started doing it for a living. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at RB Please. Potting used to be fun until I started doing it for a living, and I don't even do it for a living. Uh, today, we are uh, thrilled to welcome returning guest Charlie Mackin to our episode to talk about uh, this movie. Welcome back, Charlie. Hi, yeah, I'm Charlie Mackin. You can find me at Charlie Mander on Twitter, Charlie Mander 13. And uh, I'm going to miss the sound of those bells. Oh, my God. You said you didn't have one. Uh, but we are talking, as you might have guessed from the episode description about 1989's Kiki's Delivery Service, uh, one of the um, flagship titles, you would call it, of the Studio Ghibli repertoire and uh, Hayao Miyazaki's filmography. I'm going to let Aaron take it away before I bumble too much what this movie is about. Indeed, Kiki's Delivery Service, 1989, directed by Hayao Miyazaki, um, an adaptation of the 1985 novel of the same name by Aiko uh, Kadano. Uh, I didn't know that. This is the first time that I uh, knew that really? this is an it's, adaptation it's, it's, of the book. It's in the intro credits. Uh, I'm not very perceptive. You just I, I should have known. Away by the excitement and majesty of the movie, and so you. That's right. The, the, right. the, the beautiful song that plays during that sequence. Um, it is a really, really good song. song. Yes. Uh, so, so Kiki uh, is a 13-year-old amateur witch who decides to make the journey that every young witch must do, which is to leave her home and to find a city to inhabit uh, and perform kind of I don't know, witchy tasks and chores and whatnot um, in. Uh, she is accompanied by her black cat, Gigi, uh, and the pair of them find a large city kind of on the water uh, called Corico. Uh, there she finds lodging with a woman named Asono who runs a bakery. Um, Kiki earns money by starting a delivery service there, flying around packages on her magic flying broomstick. Um, she also meets an artist named Ursula, as well as a young boy named Tombo, who uh, clearly has some sort of uh, an attraction or like of Kiki. Um, her interactions with the people of Koriko, as well as her own uh, work running the delivery service, kind of help her come to terms with her own growth as a uh, not only a young woman, but also a witch as well. Um, so... Japanese film, Japanese animated film. Uh, the actors here are, are voice actors. Um, so the, at least the, the Japanese voice actors here, uh, Minami Takayama uh, as Kiki, Rei uh, Sakuma as Gigi, uh, Kaiko Toda as Asono, 
uh, Minami Takayama as Ursula and Kape Yamaguchi as Tambo. Uh, hopefully didn't slaughter all those. Um, the film was the uh, kind of it was the highest grossing film in Japan uh, upon release in 1989 for that year. Um, was also very critically acclaimed. Uh, the film was actually a, a large hit on VHS in the United States when it was imported uh, specifically and kind of dubbed by, dubbed by Disney uh, in 1998, uh, so almost 10 years later. Um, and along with other kind of increasingly popular Japanese animated films, uh, helped to open up the U.S. market, not just to anime films, but also specifically to kind of that VHS uh, market. Um, last thing kind of to note here is as far as the U.S. releases go, uh, there is a streamlined dub uh, from, I believe, 89 when the film came out. But kind of the, the more popular versions that I think most people uh, grew up with were uh, the Disney dubs, um, of which there is the original dub, and then there is a significantly changed dub from 2010 uh, for the DVD cop release that I believe has been also for releases since then that kind of changes the film to be a bit more like the original uh, Japanese um, uh, audio track. Uh, so yes, that is my summary. Um, Charlie, uh, it's my understanding that you uh, especially love this film. Um, so I guess, um, what what are your thoughts? Yeah, this is my favorite movie. Um, it has been forever. Uh, we definitely owned the VHS and maybe even the streamlined version because I'd have some like old memories of like when the songs were different, you know, like they were American songs instead of Japanese songs. So I believe what we owned was actually the original 1998 Disney dub before they made the 2010 changes. So that is super that is in line with what you were saying. Yeah, there, there were some changes to the audio. Right. Yeah. So we've been watching it for far longer than I can remember. And it's always been my favorite movie um, for like changing reasons throughout my life when I was little, just because I loved the idea of flying on a broomstick and I would like pretend to do that. And then, you know, as I get older, you know, I've watched it through puberty. I watch it like all around every birthday. And I feel like it's kind of changed why I like it as I age, but I've always loved it and came back to it. So really always been my favorite movie so i'm kind of excited to see what everybody else has to say about it yeah it's such a great perspective to have and i'm curious just off the top is this like an ironclad movie for you charlie is there anything that you've heard in the years since you first saw it that's like oh that i understand that criticism or i understand why people think this about it or has it always just been no this is a five-star perfect movie to me uh yeah i've heard some criticisms but i think the criticisms were more about like that's not for me. Like, I think some mm. people don't like the pacing of the plot or, you know, don't like the way that certain characters are something like that. But it's, it's never felt like, oh, you're right about that. It's more about for it's like, oh, maybe you just don't really like this specific type of movie or this isn't exactly for you. It's it hasn't ever really changed my opinion. Okay, that's good to know, because I would like to be able to rely on that as like the 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 stalwart defense of like, if I don't understand something about the movie, I can sort of go back to y'all too about what what is really there and what what I'm not seeing. Um, I don't have any complaints about this movie. I'm going to keep my thoughts pretty simple, pretty straightforward as the movie itself tends to be. Um, one, Tombo is just completely based, absolutely just a, a real king staying in his lane. It's just him and the clouds and pretty girls, you know? Really um, the template also, for simps everywhere. My and And an absolute apex in that in that whole in the animal kingdom. Um, 
Osuno's husband uh, waiting for Kiki to arrive and see the sign that he made her, okay. and then ducking and then ducking out as soon of as as she comes by, so that he can like casually come out as if he wasn't waiting. That shit is solid gold. Like I that must specific confess, moment. Uh, I did make uh, Osuno's husband fan cam before this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I am not going to not let you tweet that out from our account. Oh yeah, it's happening. <laughs> Oh my good god, he is just such. I think he has. Is it Fukuo? I think is the actual Fukuo, like name of the character yeah. in the books. But anyway, he's Osano's husband. He's just a silent, uh, you know, heart of gold, um, you know, burly chested guy. Just a perfect character. Uh, and that little moment, that little character moment, opened up so much for me of him because like I had remembered him as sort of like again, you know, completely silent, just stoic but sweet. And that's just like the most human thing I've seen in a in a movie in a long time. Um. I deeper thoughts are that like, I really like, you know, there's, there's the, the, the complaint, I guess, um, that like uh, Charlie was saying that, you know, some of the pacing isn't really there or like, it doesn't really forward its climax in the most dramatic of ways. But I think that's very intentional. Um, I think the moment that Kiki misses, uh, the party, um, where Tombo was going to, uh, unveil his, you know, uh, airy aerial locomotive, his bike, basically his bike plane. Um, I think the fact that she misses that is like the movie's statement about like what the climax would have been in any other movie and where that movie would have gone. And it chooses a left path. Um, I will allow, I apologize for the sounds of a bus in the background. Uh, it's a very naturalist type episode today, but I will allow the words of, uh, Hayami Zaki himself to go out. I'm reading um, his starting point. It's a collection of his memoirs and thoughts and directorial notes uh, from 1979 to 96. I will let his thoughts about the intro of this movie. Well, near the intro where, um, where Kiki meets the, uh, I believe she's just known as, excuse me, the senior witch in the skies um, who ends up going to a different city than she does. Uh, let's see. Uh, when we initially encountered Kiki in Eiko Kakuno's story, the image that first came to mind was that of a young girl flying through the night, was night sky over a city. Um, there would be lots of sparkling lights below, but these lights would simply not warmly welcome her. The scene would therefore symbolize the solitude of flying alone. To be able to fly through the air means to be liberated from the ground, but liberation can also create insecurity and loneliness. In our film version, Kiki's magic is something that all real girls possessed, limited abilities that merely hint at some sort of talent. Um, and uh, given that, that's going to be the end of my thoughts. So uh, I actually have to take a, a slight detour down to the ground, um, but I will leave uh, Harry um, flying up in the air all on his own. Harry, you want to you wanna coast for us? Wow. Thank you, Jason. Um, and thank you for that introduction as well. Um, the particular insecurity and isolation as keywords are really um, potent uh, way into this movie, I think. Um, first of all, I should say, like, I'm not I'm not going to be an objective person at all, right? Because this is Charlie's favorite movie. Um, I am awfully fond of Charlie. Ipso facto, I'm awfully fond of this movie. <laughs> I've seen it qu- like a, a lot of times, maybe more than any other single movie except for like, Oh brother, where art thou? Um, similarly to Charlie, I notice something different every time I watch it. I notice something as I grow, um, particularly Jason and you and I have discussed this at length, but what a movie to arrive back into after you've spent some years on the workforce, particularly in jobs that are not necessarily what you want to be doing, particularly jobs that are sort of, um, one might say, if you want to be a little bit overdramatic about it, perversions of the thing that you love uh, or the skill that you have. Jason and I are both uh, professional writers. We both work in marketing, which is not necessarily our first choice. Um, I don't want to speak for Jason, but for me, that's true. Um, so that is quite an angle to arrive at. Um, it's also a movie with astounding um, empathy and sincerity and love for 
women uh, and for community and for the process of coming of age. Um, I've always had sort of two main themes that weave through this narrative for me. One of them is the aforementioned sort of like conflict between passion and labor. The other is um, the role of um, role models and inspiration and community in a coming of age context and how those things um, or how one person is inspired by others and in turn inspires others. Um, I think this is one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen at depicting particularly how women uh, grow and shape each other or grow with and shape one another um, and the role of community and of um, sort of mutual love and respect in creating um, identity for one another um, that it that makes me very emotional even to talk about um, so that'll be interesting um, I had never really reconciled those two themes right the idea of like okay where does like labor and identity maintenance how do those things intersect within this movie I always knew they did I always had a pretty hard time squaring that circle so I'm really excited to talk about that Jason some of the stuff that you have written about and talked about has helped me with that as well as a lot of my discussions with Charlie have helped me arrive there um, and I think that the the role of Kiki's insecurities and her um her deep sort of like self-doubt and self even uh light self-loathing um or trepidation about herself um plays a part in that as well as her class so this is this is an interesting class movie so there's a lot to talk about basically um i think that this movie is an unbridled masterpiece um i if i have any criticisms of it it is that i think that hayao miyazaki's grumpy old man politics sort of inflect a lot of the um the uh, themes in in a way that is not necessarily as sort of benevolent or as sort of earnest as I would like it to be. Um, this movie ends up being pretty skeptical or even um, angry toward quote unquote newfangled technologies or the next generation and becomes this sort of very full throated spirited defense of like the the past or like previous generations and their validity. Um, again, I think that going as far as to say that this movie is hateful towards new people and new thoughts is a bad faith reading. So I would defend against that. But that is one major criticism I have seen that is valid, right? Is that um, between uh, Kiki's sort of... Um, interactions with the old women and with Ursula and the fact that witches themselves are sort of like this traditionalist sort of um, naturalist um, position versus the sort of like new generations reliance on technology or um, innovation or sort of like um, the, the things that are encapsulated by the spirit of freedom, the um, dirigible there is, there is something happening there that is not great because again, I think Miyazaki is just kind of a grumpy old dude. Um, much love toward him, but we can unpack that as well. But I've talked long enough and I want to now uh, deliver this, this very large package that um, I'm probably not being paid enough for in the rain to Aaron, who is going to be very ungrateful when I deliver it to him. So thanks for nothing, Aaron. I am tipping you $3 on my Kiki's app. Uh, and the the Kiki Corporation will be taking that three dollars, and you will not see a penny of it, uh, unfortunately. Um, no, I uh, I also owned a VHS copy of this when I was younger. It was like the one. It was the VHS copies that were like specifically for kids that had the really like puffy packaging. You know what I mean? That's a good shit. The, the yeah, good yeah, shit. Yep. 
Yes, uh, I, I remember that in my mind. It was like so much bigger than all other VHS uh, like packaging. What's up but, with um, that? They, is that like a child proofing mechanism? Did they I, want, I, like, they, maybe. I, yes, I have to assume that it's a protective measure, and like it just has it sticks out more on the shelf. You know, from a marketing perspective, I'm sure. assuming. Like I, I always, I always assigned quality to movies that came in that, even if they were bad. <laughs> I always thought slightly worse of them because I was like, just why? I, it's like the same thing with books where you got a nice book bookshelf, like a row on a bookshelf, and there's one book that's like the weirdest proportions, and you're like, okay, yeah, fuck yeah. off. All right. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, that is uh, so. I did have a VHS copy of it. Um, I didn't really watch it that much uh, as a kid. I, I loved Studio Ghibli. I, I loved Spirited Away and um, uh, Mononoke specifically, but also watched, you know, Howls and Theaters and Nausicaa and all this. Um, but I didn't really watch Kiki's. Uh, and I think that's because um, it didn't have uh, swords and it didn't have guns in it and, and shit yeah. like that. Um, which is to say that I was an incredibly dumb child. Um, and I, I've maybe gotten slightly smarter over the years, but but just slightly. Because um, I, do, I do really like this movie. Um, and I have actually seen it a bunch. I mean, I did see it a little bit when I was a kid. And then, you know, when I went to high school, or probably college, I started kind of rewatching it more. And I've, I've seen this movie um, a lot of times. Um, and I, I really love this movie. Um, it, it's never quite been my, my favorite Ghibli film. I think that that goes to Mononoke just due to the presence of the swords and guns that I mentioned earlier. Um, but that just means that this is, if not like a top five movie for me, then it's just like one of my kind of general favorite movies. You know what I mean? Um, I do have some very small problems with it. Uh, there's some stuff I, we maybe we'll talk about with, uh, the dub, uh, of this film, or at least one specific dub of this film, which is what I ended up watching here. Um, usually I watch the sub specifically of this movie over dub, although I am a Studio Ghibli uh, dub defender, uh, specifically in the case of, of Spirited Away and Mononoke. I really love those dubs. Just the wrong opinions top to bottom. I Oof. think s- some dubs are better, some dubs are worse. I think this is unfortunately one of the not great ones, uh, although I do have certain fond memories of it from, from watching it uh, over the years. Um, I also uh, don't love the climax of this movie um, and, and frankly don't view it as entirely necessary. I imagine that's also something we'll talk about. Um, but but those are like two, I think, pretty minor criticisms in an otherwise kind of flawless movie. Um, and, and as far as, you know, this watch, um, I don't know if I necessarily like discovered anything, like there was no Eureka moment because I, I have seen it like so many times. But I do think that, um, it did reinforce how much there really is here, even for a kid's movie for, uh, you know, grown ups per se to, to kind of grab onto. I think what Harry mentioned earlier with, uh, uh how Miyazaki treats his female characters in this film. Um, I think it's great. I think that there's just like so much, like even kind of like practical economical things that, that Miyazaki does that, that ends up kind of treating his female characters. Well, like the fact that Kiki is just like, I'm just going to leave a month early. I'm just going to tell my parents I'm leaving a month early. The weather's nice today. I'm just going to leave. Like that's, does that like really make any sense with how like parenting works? Well, maybe not, but like that does make sense apparently with how witches work. Right. And Kiki knows that she wants to leave today and that's her decision. Um, and she's doing it right. Uh, also the fact that people just kind of, uh, except that witches exist and can fly and shit, but they're also still like amazed every time they see it. It's like little things like that, that like don't make sense, but like they're portrayed so well in this film that you're like, Oh, that actually does make sense in the universe that that's being crafted here. Um, and that kind of stuff is something that, that Miyazaki is always like so good at. Um, so yeah, just that kind of stuff just kept getting hammered in by, by yet another watch. Um, and yeah, really, 
really like this movie. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you brought that up, Aaron, uh, specifically about her, you know, sort of like treat leaving leaving the family early, um sort of starting on her own path uh as as her own person, you know, a month early when she's 13, you know, like that real maturity that like quote-unquote maturity, right? It's it's not as she's finding uh as she learns once she actually like starts her own life. Um again, from that same passage where she wrote, or excuse me, where uh, Hayamizaki wrote a little bit about um his own films. This was in 1988. Uh he wrote about uh, Kiki's Delivery Service before the movie came out. Um and he was talking about like the need to express and describe independence in movies, especially for young girls that um that was not like by material uh, his exact phrase is, uh, we are in fact in an age where poverty should be discussed in spiritual rather than material terms and said that, um, it is no longer appropriate to refer to leaving one's parents as a rite of passage because all it takes today to live on one's own in society is the ability to shop at the local convenience store. And I, I think like, while there's a little bit of, like Harry said, old man ism to that, where it's like, oh, you know, people, you, people entering the workforce are getting younger and younger. And, you know, assuming that there's certain, you know, economical uh, disparities that don't really exist sort of thing. Like, even with that, it, I think what, what he's saying there and doing in the movie is like forwarding the idea that internally there is a change that happens more importantly than externally, right? Um, that, you know, it doesn't matter so much that she's leaving early as like, she believes she's ready as she, uh, you know, is, is determined to, and, and ready for the change that that would mean, um, ahead of when it would actually be practical for her to try that. I, I do, uh, the, the question of, I mean, Miyazaki is like a notorious grumpy old man, so I don't want to say like he's not. Um, but I, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't struck by that in a negative sense in the same way that, that I think Harry may have been a little bit. Don't want to overstate what Harry said earlier, but I, I do right. think that there is, I mean, quotes like that kind of, I don't know. I don't want to say it's like indisputable or something, but like I get where someone's coming from criticizing him, but I, I think in the film, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that the, the, the main aspect that speaks to that is the difference between, uh, you know, Kiki's flight and something like Tombo's uh, a flight with his little bike uh, uh, helicopter gyrocopter thing, uh, and then of course comparing that to the the kind of the blimp at the end of the film. Um, and I think there is the the usual kind of Miyazaki um, kind of anti-industrial pro nature uh, uh, stance that you see uh, very heavily in films like Mononoke, but even kind of there are certain films where he just like slips it in all of a sudden at the end. Um, Castle in the sky does that. He just like, just very quickly like throws it in the last 15 minutes and then you see it. Um, I, I don't, I, I guess I don't, I don't think that that's never came off as like too grumpy to me. I do think that there is um, a fairly valid critique then. I think specifically with the character of Tombo being in this film, I think if it was just Kiki and then, and then, you know, just a bunch of, you know, uh, vapid like teenagers who hate their grandmother's pies or whatever. And then the blimp that I can kind of see it, but I do think that Tombo is Tombo's invention is seen as kind of a thing of beauty, right. Um, and innovative and coming from some uh, like internal fascination with the world and with technology and science um, and, and how that ties back to nature. I guess that's, Sorry if that's kind of a, a rant, Harry. Harry, do you want to address that? I didn't mean to shit on your point because I kind of I think I mostly agree with you, but um, it's never came off as grumpy in this film, I guess. 
No, I mean, I, I think I agree with you entirely, right? Because like, it's not really my point. That is a criticism that I've read and seen elsewhere. Um, I will say, though, that the, the part that feels most valid to me is not actually the dichotomy between the dirigible and Tombo's machine and Kiki's flight. It's just the general sense in which this movie treats its younger characters aside mm-hmm. from Kiki and Tombo. Um, it's a POV movie, so this is all from Kiki's perspective, and so these characters are given sort of like outsized personalities, but like you compare the angelic nature of the grandma to the like unbelievably ungrateful, mean-spirited granddaughter, um, and there's that whole scene where like she says she hates grandma's crummy uh, herring pies and she slams the door in Kiki's face and Gigi even says something to the effect of, I can't believe they're related. Um, or Tombo's friends tooling around in their monkey car and like the way that they make Kiki feel ostracized and isolated because of who she is. And the general sense that like, there is a general sense of like ungrateful kids happening here. And especially the way it characterizes what is positive about Kiki and Tombo in the sense that they are sort of old fashioned and emblematic of old fashioned values. I mean, in the much less interesting, much more sort of like, um, corporate version of this movie kiki is much more a character who is obviously old-fashioned like if if this was like a 10 things i hate about you style high school movie she and tombo would be like the old school hipsters you know what i mean versus like the new like um she'd have walkman with some real throwback sounds and tunes coming from like a garden state character right like a hundred percent that's like what that's what witching represents in this. And it's kind of what Tombo's fascination with aviation and his general nerdiness represents too, is like, these are characters who are like really fascinated by things. And in contrast to the people around them who are more interested in things that are more quote unquote age appropriate. And so like that is in my mind where the sort of, frustrating grumpiness comes from. But again, the reason I think that's bad faith is because we are not actually seeing these characters necessarily as they're depicted. We are seeing Kiki reacting to these characters. You could make the argument that none of the things that the characters do are actually that ungrateful or actually that mean-spirited. It's Kiki's interpretation of them, which stems from her own insecurity and her own lack of self-confidence that makes her feel that way, right? She is a character who has a complicated relationship with her witching powers because they make her feel isolated and they make her feel um, insecure, right? Like, she's the character who can't afford nice shoes. She's the character who has to wear black, even though she would rather wear white or something else because it's traditional. She's the character who can't imagine a guy thinking she's cute or attractive, right? And she's the character who looks up to all of these women who seem so put together and seem so self-actualized in perceived contrast to her, who seems so, no pun intended, flighty and um, sort of behind the times, right? And so, like, it's really important in my mind to view Kiki as a character who is very insecure and who is very anxious about her development and feels maybe even a little bit behind or is very afraid that she won't be able to develop um, the right skills, right? She's a character who is constantly looking for her skills, saying like, what am I good at? What am I the best at? Um, Which is a really interesting motif in Miyazaki movies because that is also what um, Whisper of the Heart is concerned with in a major way. And it's sort of, it's a very Miyazaki creative thing. And so I guess, speaking of rant, sorry about that, Aaron, but like that is sort of my um, presentation of that argument and then counter argument against it, I guess. 
so sort of springboarding from that, um, Charlie, I'm interested. What what do you think about how the movie like gives Kiki a motivation there? Like it at the beginning, of course, it's to find her own self and to like turn her witching powers and her talents into like her own living and live her own life kind of thing as as a witch, self-actualizing. Eventually she like has some um envy of, you know, people who were able to wear nice clothing, as Harry was saying. Maybe she, you know, does but by the end she's she like no longer has that desire. She's no longer like uh, like she's still in the same dress she had. She's still working with a broom that she had to bum off some guy at the climax of the movie. Um, so what what do you think? I guess how do you think? Uh, how effectively do you think it puts together that motivation for Kiki? And how does it change it over time, or or does it does it matter? Um. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that it does and it doesn't change right because she knew at the beginning of the movie that this was about finding herself it's just that finding herself is a process that's different than she thought it was going to be at the beginning right like she thought finding herself meant finding a concrete skill polishing it being good at it and then like that's it right but actually finding herself was finding her inspiration of why she even wants the skill in the first place and Mm. what is her community and her life around her skill going to look like and why does she want to be in this town other than the fact that I'm 13 and I need to find town and this one's by the ocean. You know, it's it's a lot deeper than she originally thought it was going to be and there's a lot Mm -hmm. more facets than just what's my witch power and this town is by the ocean. Like there's so many more parts of your life that you have to think out than just like your job, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It it seems to me like, Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jason. I was just going to say, it seems like it becomes more deliberate as she goes, right? She doesn't even know where she's going to land until um, she's there. You know, she falls asleep in a train and wakes up in the town that she's in. And then she just says, she's going to start there. So is is that sort of what you mean is like, she comes to, to define her own motivation as she goes. Yeah, I mean, like like she literally says, she has to find her own inspiration. She has to find out why she's doing the things that she's doing, not just because she was told that that's what she's supposed to do. You know, like she picked this town kind of on a whim, but after a while, she's realizing she wants to be in this town because it's the town where Osono is, and it's the town where, you know, her friends are, and it's the town where the old lady is, and you know, she doesn't want to fly just because it's the only skill that she has, but because it's how she interacts with other people and because she can fly with Tombo now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's about finding the reasons to do things that are internal, not external. Like she's not doing things because she's 13 and because she's a witch. She's doing things because they're genuinely what she and her heart wants to be doing. Yeah, I, I think it's also um, it's also a slight realization of the the way that society kind of acts uh, uh, outside of, of the environment that she grew up in. I mean, we're given, you know, I don't know what, like two, two and a half minutes at the very, very beginning of the film. Um, I think we're supposed to understand that she has a, a pretty nice life, right? She has uh, parents that very clearly love her kind of a supportive uh, kind of like social group uh, of a variety of different people and witches and whatnot. Um, and, uh, you know, Miyazaki does this thing quite a bit actually that, that, tends to usually work out quite well for him uh, where uh, his main characters often don't have flaws per se. Um, uh, The flaw is, is how their kind of attitudes and characteristics are interpreted from the world around them. Right. Often Mm -hmm. his characters are like perfect. Uh, uh, 
I mean, like I think Nausicaa is, is the biggest of example of this. I, I kind of don't actually like how that is, how that works out in Nausicaa per se. Um, but, but Princess Mononoke is another example. Um, this is another one uh, where, you know, K- Kiki is kind of happy living her life until she starts to realize just how depressing and soul sucking that, that modern life can actually be in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she interacts of course with the, the kind of um, spoiled teenager who, who doesn't understand the, the love and care that her grandmother put into this herring pie. Um, she, she begins to do the thing that she loves and, and grew up doing uh, as a, as a way to earn money and a way to, you know, kind of pay for her way in the world. And that kind of sucks a lot of the, um, the soul out of it, right? She interacts with people who don't understand her for who she is, uh, and and you know Tombo's friends. I do think that Harry's point is correct, and that specifically Tombo's friend. I mean, look, I think the 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 little girl who didn't like the herring pie, she she needs to stop doing that shit immediately. But like Tombo's <laughs> friends seem okay, right? I don't think they. Maybe there's like one or two kind are of they, slightly mean spirited lines. Are they not? The, are they not the same people? For some reason, I thought that the kids in the car yes. when they're on their way to the dirigible, I thought that was wait, they like, are the, the girl. The granddaughter yeah, is among them. One of the girls is is the girl that was at okay. that party. Well, she, her says um, two faced like, oh, little. <laughs> well, and, and they're they're actually, and this is important. So sorry to to take it over, but um, yeah, go. They actually talk favorably about Kiki when she's out of earshot. Right? They go, "Wow, she's working at her age. That's wild," or something like that. Which is interesting because that could be interpreted both ways. And I think Kiki interprets it the negative way, where they mean it in the positive way. And that's like a whole process that we'll get into. I mean, so she she is like, yeah, she's kind of a little shit, but like she is. Uh, I maybe I'm totally off base here, but I think everybody has stuff like that from when they were younger that they kind of regret like things that nice things that family members did for you that you didn't appreciate. Uh, and maybe they're dead or maybe they're gone. Or you don't see them as much. And you're like, man, I should have really appreciated that quite a bit more when I was younger. I think that, you know, I don't know. Miyazaki is maybe just kind of griping about it a little bit, but like, I don't think that that character is like a bad person per se. I would hope that she would kind of grow up and learn to empathize with your grandmother and other characters in her life. Um, but, but Kiki herself really does not, I mean, I guess the, the largest flaw that she has is kind of what Charlie is talking about and that she has not discovered, um, a true passion for what she's doing. She is kind of set out on a quest that she's supposed to do and she finds value, um, with the people around her, but also kind of this, this, you know, self-understanding of who she is and why she wants to do these things. Um, and Miyazaki does it a lot. And it's like one thing that, that it, it honestly is very rare. And I don't know why other people, specifically people's making kids movies. Don't just copy this shit. Cause it, it works so well every time that he does it. But um, I digress. Uh, you, you probably knew this was coming, Aaron. Um, I disagree with that. Uh, analysis of Kiki. I think that her flaw, her sort of heroic flaw, quote unquote, is her fundamental insecurity. It's the fact that when other people perceive her in ways other than she wants to be perceived, she takes their perception as truth. Um, It's existentially unnerving to her when somebody finds her to be plain or finds her to be old fashioned or finds her to be, um, 
annoying or uh, sort of like unprepared. Um, she this- is a character who secretly believes that she is that way. She's a she's a character who is who is frightened by the idea that she is not getting something, that she's unprepared and immature. And when other characters perceive her that way, she immediately defaults back to thinking that about herself. Um, mm-hmm. That is why her powers are stripped from her at the end of this movie or at near the end of this movie. It's it's because she is uh, lacking the inspiration and she has to refine that, right? Charlie, do you want to speak to that a little bit? I was, I was just going to say, God, like being a 13-year-old girl <laughs> is just being insecure. Like there's no thought that goes through your head that isn't just about what other people are thinking about you. And this movie really shows it really well. Like from the very start when she's talking to this, you know, more mature witch and it's like, God, everybody my age is more put together and knows what they're doing and is prettier than I am. And then she goes into the town and she walks past those girls and it's like, Oh God, I wish I could be them. And they probably think that I'm so weird and boring and gross. And then they come back and they're friends with Tombo. And she's like, Oh my God, Tombo probably hangs out with them all the time. So I must be. And it's like, you can almost hear it in her head, right? It's like just this constant background noise of insecurity. <laughs> yeah. And and even that's even the it's even and especially present in her interactions that are positive with other women, right? Like particularly Asono and Ursula are both these incredible role models to Kiki, but that's because Kiki almost worships them, right? Like uh, she thinks that Asono and Ursula basically walk on water, right? Like Asono's the greatest. Ursula is unbelievable how independent she is. Like the fact that she can paint that way, the fact that she doesn't let anybody get under her skin. Like Kiki is a character who thinks these people are like the best. Well, and that's, part of her arc, right, is that Kiki thinks that everybody is better than her and can only give to her, like Osana gives her the job and the place, and Ursula helps her with all of this stuff and is so great, but what she doesn't realize is that she's giving back as much as she's receiving, right? She has that beautiful scene with Ursula later where Ursula explains, yeah, you inspired me, I made this piece because of you, you make me want to paint, And it's like Kiki doesn't realize that hanging out with Ursula feeds her soul and her spirit, or she calls it in the movie, but she is also feeding Ursula's spirit, right? She is, she's equally an inspiration to all of those people. They all see her the way that she sees them. Right. Yeah, uh, that the moment when Kiki is looking at the painting that Ursula painted of her makes me cry like a baby every (laughs) single time I see it. I was going to get you to uh, lean into that if that's... Aaron, were you going to head somewhere else with that, or can we... Uh, well, I was going to maybe defend my prior point a little bit in saying that I don't think that that is necessary. I would not describe that as a character flaw uh, in the same way that something like jealousy or, or cowardice or something is right. I mean, the, the Kiki, I'm not saying that Kiki is not a character who grows over the course of the film. Uh, She, she of course does, but her, the, 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 the issue or the, the way in which she grows is not um, covering up some flaw. It is it is coming to terms with herself, I guess. I, I, the, the difference I, I think when I think of Miyazaki's... about what a flaw is. I think that flaws can be sympathetic and lovable. They don't have to be negative. I mean, like, you know what I mean? It's it's like... But is, is that a... My, my point is that Miyazaki purposely creates characters who are... And this was the... Oh, I don't even want to get about the discussion about that quote that... Uh, my point is that Miyazaki purposely creates characters who do not have negative traits. Very often he does this. Um, and, and the interaction is with a person who does not have negative traits coming into contact 
with a world that has many negative traits. Um, and I think that works differently uh, in his films. And that is the thing that I don't really see that often outside of his films. Yeah. But maybe that's, that's, that's an interesting. Romantic, yeah. I mean, I, well, I, it's just that like Kiki's so socially dysfunctional because of how acute her her insecurities are that it's like to say to say that she's not flawed is like i mean she she has a very difficult time interacting with people her own age because she is so afraid of them it's like and and like that is not a character flaw quote unquote because it's not something that is that is bad necessarily but it is something that like is a dysfunction that profoundly affects her life right and it's like hey guess what like it's I'm sympathetic to it because that was also my quote unquote character flaw when I was 13. Right. <laughs> uh, Aaron, what, I guess, how does the, the moment with Ursula where she unveils the painting that she's been making um, that was inspired by Kiki, how does that complicate that notion of, you know, her seeing the world? Um, you know, I, what you said, correct me if I'm wrong, was that she has few flaws, if any visible, and that it's the world around her that is seeing her and that is, uh, that she is yet to perceive that is in many ways flawed that she's, you know, reacting to in a lot of ways. Um, how does, how does that moment with, with Ursula complicate that then at all for you? Is it just uh, like, this is, this is rote, this is like, this belongs, or is it, that's a twist? I don't, I don't, I don't think it complicates it. I mean, I, two things, one, and this may be me being a real sicko. That scene's never really hit me like that. I don't know what it is. I'm sure that's just, I'm uh, broken in some manner, but that scene's it's a, yeah, it's a good scene, but like, it's never really gotten me that uh, emotional for some reason. Um, but but uh, I do think that, yes, I mean, well, lots of, I mean, I, I, there are I, probably I, lots of scenes in movies that you find very emotional that I don't right. find particularly emotional. It's, I mean, it's okay. That's, that's I totally I fine. I don't want to assail you for that, but I just want to ask, like, have you ever like really dug into why for me, it's like, it's the surprise of that scene that hits. Like I did not expect that moment at that point in the movie. And suddenly I am caught unawares, you know, in the pacing of the movie to have this emotional moment. But it sounds like for you, that didn't, it doesn't land there. The drama doesn't Um, build or. I have a jokey answer that would not be accepted well, but look, I don't think the painting looks that good. I'm just going to say it. I don't like the look of the painting. Oh, All right. That's not it's a just, it, it was, uh, it was created I know it's, it's by it's, developmentally it's, challenged it's per- uh, children what? in a Japanese uh, elementary school. Wait, was it? So, yes, it was. Oh, this is what uh, you didn't like the, the sound of me Googling in the background. Made for uh, made for Hayao Miyazaki here. That sort of represents that uh, unbelievable beauty that I'm talking about. Uh, the <laughs> the scene is undeniably beautiful, uh, but I I do not think it complicates what I talk about uh, earlier um, because I, I think it is ultimately um, it it is Kiki seeing how somebody else sees her. Uh, that is correct, uh, kind of for the first time, right? It is a, a yeah, kind of a, yeah. an understanding of the self um, that comes upon her. Yeah, um, and, and it really, yeah. No, please, I, I didn't want to cut you off. I, I just no, I'm just thing. owned. I, I just got you are, owned. You are yeah. pretty well owned, brother. Uh, I have a bill of sale that shows Aaron fully owned. Um, I own the title now. I, I was just going to like say that that ties well into what Charlie was saying about, uh, you know, what she's giving to the world versus what she's, you know, just seen herself as taking, just seen herself as like audience to, um, is that she, uh, you know, realizes there are transactions that there is that the nature of being, the nature of coexisting is generally transaction as, as Miyazaki himself said, rather than material, spiritual, right? That it's dependence, that it's independence, that it's, um, you know, finding one's purpose and, you know, building from the shred of skill they have that 
hints at a talent uh, that, you know, sort of starts to unearth that. And to me, that's that moment is that development in, in Kiki is like it's a more in more an internal moment than an external moment, even though it is externally. Um, uh, what am I trying to say? That it's externally um, triggered, that it's like that she only realizes this about herself when she sees it externalized, when she sees somebody else's vision and perception of her. Um, and when I just when I just think of all the implications that has for what the movie has shown me and the character that it's built and the sort of struggles she's going through, that hits pretty heavy for me in that moment. Yeah, really well said, Jason. I was going to say the same thing. Um, yeah, I think another uh, symbol of that in the movie that I really love um, is the broom at the very end of the movie, the push broom. I actually really love that she continues to use it because, you know, there's that moment at the beginning where she made her own broom, but she had to take her mom's. And then, you know, when she loses her powers, the broom breaks. And now this new broom is one that she grabbed, you know, kind of out of necessity, but she's made it her own and it has become her own broom that she's using to, you know, fly where she wants to, where with the people that she wants to be with. So besides the painting, the keeping of the broom during the credit scene where you can see that she's still using it always really speaks to me. Yes, yes, yes. That the fact that she's still using the same thing that like that she's had to develop her own like she's had to come into her own comfort, right? Like I, I think it was, um, I forget what I was reading, but the, the a point was raised about the broom that she's given at the beginning is like, she's under her mother's protection. She has like that. She carries a piece of her mother with her in that old broom. Um, she's like, Another it's like, role model, right? Yeah. And it's like the green Knight's belt, right? Like it's a symbol of, of, uh, comfort and of, of chastity. Safety, I think, of chastity. <laughs> uh-huh. I think it's, uh, it's, it's not only her mother's protection, but just like this tradition and you are going to use this because this is the thing that we use and you're going right. to do this at 13 because this is the thing that we do versus, you know, this broom is it's like you've chosen this city, you've chosen these friends, you've chosen this job and this is the broom that you chose, right? Like it's it's hers. It's not anybody else's. Right, right. It's it's like, Aaron, it's like you moving to Chicago. It's like you finally making your own life rather than riding on the coattails of others. Um, I have, I see a hand up, but I want to make sure that I, uh, that that's not a, a pivot before we head to one last point I wanted to make. Yeah. Well, I have lots of points to make Jason, but I'll be brief. Uh, Wait, what? Harry has a lot of points to make. (laughs) One last thing about the painting. I think like on a meta textual level, the reason it works so well for me is because it's like, it's almost not just Kiki seeing herself that way for the first time, but it's like you as the audience member realizing that you had been seeing Kiki that way this whole time. Like one of the, my favorite things about Miyazaki movies in general on like a metatextual level is that like when you are supposed to feel a certain way about something, he like really, really brings it. And like every time you see Kiki flying, you're also seeing everybody being as Aaron mentioned, like, in awe of it and the mechanics of flight in this movie so are so obviously rendered with this like unbelievable care and love for the idea right like the the mechanics of watching kiki fly the way she like sort of hovers and the the way that she wavers in the air and the way that she finds her footing it like it looks so good right and like that is so important to the movie itself is that like the joy and majesty of flying is something that is like that is like unbelievable right like it's something that's inspirational and so like 
seeing that painting and, and being like, Kiki, look, like, this is how we all see you. Like, this is what you're amazing to us. And like, we, we think that you're an inspiration. And then like realizing that you had been seeing it that way too is like, uh, I, I struggle. I say this word when it comes to Miyazaki too much, but it's like transcendental, right? It's like, mm-hmm. he just did that to me, like with a movie. Right. And it's like, that's a, that's amazing. Like, I can't believe that, that, that works as well as it does. There's an incredible appreciation of like movement and of character. Um, there are all, all kinds of documentaries, obviously, um, about, uh, Miyazaki and his work and the work of Studio Ghibli. The one, I believe it's 10 years with Hayao Miyazaki that was produced by NHK, um, a few years back is stunning for exactly that, uh, about watching how he concepts and sort of builds characters, even physically in his mind. Um, not just him, of course, there's a whole team of people actually in executing it, but like the, the strict, um, parameters that he puts around, like the creation and mechanics of the animation is, is exactly what leads to that. I think, you know, from like, uh, hugs between children to like flying through the air to the swinging of a sword. It's just all so pitch perfect, um, like to carry the story through those characters. I think, um, the last point I wanted to make, uh, is about the climax of this movie. Um, if there's a complaint to be heard, or at least that I've heard, uh, and I don't really think there is, um, but you know, Basically, I'm going off of Letterboxd and what I could Google for critical reception of the movie. It's that there's like the climax is like smashed into the last five minutes of the movie that like the actual danger doesn't isn't really felt by that point. We've got, um, you know, just like a, another thrilling set piece to the end of the movie. Uh, I think that by that point, we've got, um, you know, the real climax has already happened, of course at the cabin with, with, um, Ursula and, uh, you know, the way, and the fact that Kiki is sort of like, she's imbued uh, a stock broom with her, with her own power, with her own talent, with her own, she's brought it with her rather than getting it from, you know, external sources from her mother or from her community. She's found it within herself. Um, I, I just like, I'm not sure how to square that concept of, um, you know, the climax in any other movie, I think we would have been careening toward as soon as Kiki made it to the party that she ends up actually missing in another movie. She would have made it to that party. She would have seen the the flight in motion. She would have recognized pieces of herself and of the same talent she has in Tombo. And we would have had a completely different movie that probably would be on more par uh, with what the ending of this movie is, um, you know, with the uh, runaway blimp and with the dramatic crash into the clock tower and stuff. I think that the ending fits with another movie. Um, but for me, I've always been able to compartmentalize the last 10 minutes of this movie as, uh, just a really like fun way to show us the product of what already happened, like the aftermath of the climax, more or less. That's how I've always compartmentalized it and how I've like told myself that this movie has that, like that's intentional pacing, but I want to make sure I'm not just apologizing for something that isn't real. Um, does anybody have thoughts about like the way that it builds to that point in the movie and sort of like the denouement happens over the last 15 minutes there? Um, I think that this is sort of Kiki taking what she learned in the cabin and making it an external reality. It's sort of like the final climactic test that she has internalized the the values and self-actualization that she um, had picked up. Um, and I think it's important that that symbolized through Tombo, who is the character more than anybody else in the story that sees Kiki the way we see Kiki as this sort of like exceptional, amazing, inspirational figure, right? Like he is the character who worships her the way that she worships um, Asono and Ursula. And so like the fact that she is able to save him means that she becomes the sort of superheroine that he sees her as. He, she sort of like takes that mantle and like actualizes it in reality, right? Um, 
And furthermore, I think that the fact that um, we watch all of the characters that Kiki has interacted with throughout the course of the film, watching her on TV, her mom is watching, uh, the old women are watching, um, and uh, even the people she delivered packages to are all watching and cheering her on along with Asono and everybody. That's sort of a... um, it's a, a literalization and sort of a validation of the painting scene, right? Where it's like, look, like Kiki, Kiki is now capable of assuming her role within this community, of taking on the identity that she didn't even realize that she was commanding or that she, she had in her possession. And now that gives her the ability, again, to fly, right? It's this sort of, we fly with our spirits. And like now that now that she understands herself and her positioning and her relationship to other people and how she is as inspirational to others as she is inspired by others, um, that gives her back the power that she needs to do this thing and, and become the person who Tombo sees her as, which she never thought she was. But in fact, she always had been to Aaron's point. Uh, Aaron, what do you got? Yeah, um, I, I would agree, I think, with that that reading of the, the climax. Um, I, I've never loved it. To be honest, um, I, maybe that's just me, but I there's there's kind of a few things. I think it is um, kind of much more of a classic climax than than you often see, at least in the, in the quieter Ghibli films. Um, you know, something like something like Totoro, which does have a climax and does have kind of a um, a very like tense uh, ending scene, um, but is is tense due to the the perspective of the uh, the characters, right? I mean, the, the thing about Totoro is that the, there never really was any danger, right? But because we were reviewing the events of that film um, through, uh, you know, the eyes of, of two young girls, uh, we, we are kind of put into their perspective uh, to see the, the, the end of that movie. Um, something like a large blimp, uh, you know, crashing uh, is quite a bit different. Um, and I think that maybe ties into some of my other thoughts, specifically with like some of the problems I have with the dub of this film um, that specifically puts music into scenes that didn't have it, right? Quiet scenes of, of Kiki kind of flying through the clouds now have um, music that's not too obtrusive, uh, but 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 nevertheless is still there. Uh, scenes that are, are uh, maybe slightly dangerous, but but still kind of playful, such as her being attacked by birds uh, on the way to make her first delivery uh, in the dub now has a version of, of In the Hall of the Mountain King playing. Again, it's like nothing too egregious, and this climax isn't That's egregious. That's relatively still- egregious. A little, a little bit, right? But like, you know, in the Hall of the Mountain King, it is a a kind of a, a slightly playful uh, song, right? And it like, I don't know, it, it like kind of works, I think, for what the people who made the dub were right. going it's for, the, even if I right. disagree. Yeah, they were trying to soften and make it more obvious the effect that they wanted this scene to have. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that I like the version of this movie that is kind of quiet and thoughtful. Um, and I think that there is something very weird about this and again i think it does work thematically um it's very you know the idea of this this blimp is like very clearly tied into the characters of of tombo and kiki um so like it it works per se um but it's always kind of struck me wrong and i also um i I, it ends very abruptly as well like after that it's immediately done there's there's some kind of stuff during the credits and then a short scene um, at the uh, after the actual credits, where uh, Kiki writes a letter to her parents, uh, that's quite nice. Um, but the movie is is kind of like finished uh, pretty much directly after um, the scene with the blimp. Uh, that's that's something that that Miyazaki's done before. Uh, Princess Mononoke has like 
the characters have like one conversation after the climax and then it ends. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, especially because this climaxes often work so well that you don't really notice in the, in the moment. Um, but I just, I do, I do think that in, you know, comparison, I compare this movie a lot to Totoro, which uh, I don't know. I, I think that that kind of handles its, its kind of final act a little better. And it, it's always stuck out just a little bit, but again, like not too much. Um, and also it's a pretty quick sequence, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think that it does end pretty abruptly, but I also think that like any of the stuff that would have come after that just isn't necessary. You know, like her talking to Tombo or being introduced to the friend group. It's like we see all of that in the credits and it would have just been like too Mm -hmm. much to have like this downtime of us being like, yep, she's got friends now. You know, like I feel like we we had our scene with Ursula and we had her taking control of the broom and realizing that she could be this person and she's going to be this person and saving Tombo. And that's all we really need. Anything else would just be like, you know, 10 or 15 minutes of stuff that doesn't really matter, you know? Right, right. I would also like to say that, and and maybe this is just me defending something that doesn't necessarily need to be defended, but um, I, I think that like it's easy for us now to say that that is an unnecessary sequence, but if we had seen Kiki sort of like at her lowest and then rehabilitated at the cabin with Ursula, and then there had been no sort of like external triumphant validation of her, the, the movie would have ended on a very different note, right? It would have ended on this sort of like, like tentative tomorrow's another day, like rebuilding thing. So I think that like traditional as it is, and it is much more traditional compared to the rest of the movie in a lot of ways, I think it's warranted, right? It's like, we need to return to the hero's journey and we need to see Kiki um, like benefit from or triumph because of what she's learned and because of everything that, that has happened to her. Right. Like I, I think that that, that sort of external um, uh, determination is kind of an important element of making this movie. If not like, if, if not necessary, then it is important to the message of the movie and what the message is trying to impart, particularly to children. Right. Like I think that like without it, we, we have a, a much more sort of like, um, almost harrowing movie, right? Like if, if we end with just the idea that that Gigi is never going to speak again, it like becomes a very, a, an interestingly different thing, but probably something that doesn't go out on the, the note of validation that this one does. You want to talk about the change in the dub that I messaged over to you? Yeah, I mean, that's, it's awful. That's it's that's really egregious and a really good example. I mean, it was fixed in the 2010 version, but yeah, yeah I mean, like to to cover it a little Wait, bit what? real quick. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Jason. Yeah. No, Harry, just, no, no, Jason doesn't know about this. Yeah, I don't, I don't oh, know what this um, is. So in the original Disney dub, in their sort of um, continued attempts to make the movie more quote unquote palatable for Western audiences, because the early Disney stuff with Miyazaki was like really weirdly um, orientalist in a lot of ways. Like John Lasseter would always come on at the beginning and like explain them as if we needed like a white dude to like walk us into uh, Miyazaki movies and sort of in keeping with that um, there is it in the extended sequence in which uh, Kiki loses her powers and loses her will to fly Gigi her cat which has been sort of her familiar familiar also stops talking to her um, in the Disney dub originally or I, I should say in the original movie uh, he never starts speaking to her again there is one sequence where he jumps up on her shoulder and he meows like a cat again 
And uh, the idea is, is, you know, it's sort of that like Kiki is coming of age. And so her relationship with Gigi and her relationship with the world is always going to be a little bit different, but that's okay. Um, in the Disney dub, they do add a line that implies that Gigi is going to speak to her again and that being able to speak to Gigi is another one of her powers that is slowly returning to her. It's bad. It's very bad. It's uh, like it's taking yeah. a lot of like subtlety and like beauty and sadness uh, associated with coming of age and turning it into something that is like just sort of saccharine, right? Yeah. Uh, Char- Charlie, what do you think of that? Yeah, uh, I really prefer the 2010 uh, Disney dub, um, not only because of uh, Phil Hartman and Kristen Dunst, who I think knock it out of the park, but also because, yeah, those changes, like we get the original Japanese songs back, we get the silent scenes back where she's trying to take off on her broom and like there's no music or sound or anything. I think those are so powerful. And then also, yeah, Gigi doesn't talk at the end, which I think is more poignant. So uh, there were, there's like a lot of comments that actually, as much as I love to, to kind of shit on that, that earlier or, you know, version of the dub. So the 2010 ones that they kind of did what they could where they um, there's, there's bits of like Phil Hartman, uh, like talking that they shortened, maybe they like cut a line in half, right? Uh, there's also just like if you watch the original version of the dub, there's just like every single scene characters aren't on screen, like it's it's showing you know Kiki flies off on a broom and it shows a shot of some trees. Every single one of those scenes has Phil Hartman saying like, "Whoa, we're really high up there." Oh, uh, it's no, just it's, man. yeah, it's 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 brutal. Um, and the 2010 version does fix that a good amount. However, there were some people on the internet that I was because I was doing some research and they were like they kind of felt bad because well, one, they had grown up with this version of the film. And I think that's totally valid, I guess. Uh, but there were also a lot of people that were like, this is a very mean thing to do to Phil Hartman. He was murdered by his wife. And then you cut his, you cut his lines out of this movie. And it was like this weird perspective that I had like never considered where I was like, okay, I guess there's, there's, there's maybe some factors to take into account here. But like overall, I think that the 2000, 2010 version is uh, quite a bit better. Um, there is uh, to to uh, an earlier point made about kind of the early uh, Disney dubs. There is a video somewhere on the internet that I will try and find uh, that analyzes uh, the differences in the kind of the audio tracks, the, the sound as well as the dialogue and, and everything else um, between the original uh, Disney uh, releases and the you know the original Japanese releases. Um, and I have searched Studio Ghibli audio sound, pretty much any combination of those words, and it, and there's just uh, ten thousand um, ten thousand YouTube videos that are just uh, soundtrack mixes for like chill lo-fi hip hop. So I think that video may be lost for forever. Uh, but Damn you, Joe Hisashi! <laughs> stop making music that rules so much. <laughs> yes, the the point is that uh, a lot of these these early Studio Ghibli movies really got done in pretty badly uh, by Disney. You know, Castle in the Sky is is honestly the biggest example where there's you know far off shots of this giant castle in the sky and these characters like ants running across. And in the original Japanese, there's just maybe a faint sound of blowing wind, if that. And then the Japanese version, there's a song, there's random dialogue put in. There's, I mean, it it really is kind of brutal just to see like a comparison of those two things. Um, and my, I guess my last point would be, I, but I do think Kiki does still have such a great memory for people because I do think that like, you know, I think Phil Car- Phil Hartman like kind of kills it in this uh, in, with the dialogue that he has. He does a really great job. Um, and it 
like those changes, although I kind of as a grumpy man kind of see them as egregious or whatever. Um, I do think they fit kind of the vibe that what a lot of people were looking for, uh, for a movie for young kids and whatnot. Um, and I do think it works, uh, in that manner. It's tough, right? Because like, I, I agree with both the detractors and the sympathetic people when it comes to Phil Hartman, right? Because like, I do agree that like some of the more studio mandated stuff, like adding in clearly 80 yard sort of reactions by Gigi to things, it's not necessary. I'm glad it was cut out. Um, the character of Gigi is radically different in the Japanese subversion. He, he is much more a sort of traditional cute mascot type character. Phil Hartman like completely reimagines his character as this sort of like comedic presence and delivers like one of my favorite performances of a voice actor, right? Like I, I really think that like I, everybody's a huge Phil Hartman stan uh, in part because of his tragic death, right? But like, man, does he kill it in this movie? It's He's so funny and he adds so much more to the role to the point where like, I prefer the dub just because like, I really prefer his in- interpretation of Gigi. Like, I, I think that, that the the role that, or what he brings to the role is so funny and so gold that like, it's it's something that I don't want to watch the movie without, you know? Yeah, I have read some things about that. And outside of like movie reviews, I have read that sarcasm doesn't really exist in the Japanese language. It just does. It doesn't translate. So I think a lot of the jokes between the two and like the way that Gigi talks to Kiki just like needed to be changed for the audience to get a sense of the character. But yeah, Gigi is radically different between the two. And probably because of nostalgia, I do enjoy the English version better. So I don't know. I mean, we also just love Kirsten Dunst, right? Oh my God, I love Kirsten Dunst so much. Probably because of this role, but I just love her. And Spider-Man. And Spider-Man. And Spider-Man. <laughs> uh, the, the Phil Hartman uh, as Gigi, uh, my version of that is Billy Bob Thornton as Gigo in Princess Mononoke. That's, I just oh, I just can't watch the fucking sub. It's like, dude, he's just so much better as this little kind of like trickstery dude wearing these big sandals. Like he's just, well, he's just better. I need him. Yeah, I give me the sub, but that. with Billy Bob Thornton speaking English for some reason. <laughs> yeah, I mean, th- then you get Jillian Anderson as, uh, um, oh, oh, hell, the the woman making Iron Town and uh, Billy. Uh, no, up. that's uh, that's Mini Driver. Uh, oh, that's Jill- right. Mini Dri- Jillian and Anderson. Mini Driver is the She's the mother of the wolves. Yes, yeah. th- that's right. But yeah, just a just an all star uh, English cast on that one. Um, you do. Yeah, the, the other thing I was going to mention very very quickly about Gigi is that uh, the original Gigi uh, uh, voice actor is actually a, a voice actress. It's a, a a female voice, which I think does tie a little bit to Gigi as kind of this aspect of Kiki's personality yes. that she's talking to. And it, it thematically, there's at least different stuff going on with her kind of growing up as a person, I think there. So good point. Good point. Uh, this is where I'll open up the floor in the absence of Cody's notice to any final thoughts, any one-offs, any things that just tickled you that you had to talk about on Mike. Yeah. So um, I mentioned off the bat that like I was able to square something that I didn't quite get. Um, I should be honest and say that like, I think that the sort of cultural perception and, and reappraisal of this movie is often very focused on like the, the ways in which it represents or um, recreates sort of millennial burnout culture, right. About like doing the thing you love as labor and what that does to you. Um, I had never really seen that as the primary theme of this movie. Um, I was again, much more interested in uh, Kiki coming to sort of like accept 
her identity and her community and the way that she is perceived and perceives others. And so that it always sort of stuck in my craw is like, no, you're missing the real point of the movie because you're getting like caught up in this sort of like motif. Um, and th- on this viewing, I think I squared it a lot better with the help of, of Jason Wright. And I think that, and, and maybe I'm wrong, so I'll be interested in hearing your thoughts about this, but like to me, um, the, the insecurity and the, um, loneliness that Kiki feels, it is part and parcel with the sort of gig economy that she's a part of, right? Is that like, um, she loves flying. She loves what flying represents to her and to other people, this sort of like expression of love and inspiration and spirit and, um, doing it for work turns it into something that is ugly and transactional. And that makes her feel the way that the, the ungrateful people who just sort of see her as this service industry person, see her as like, she, she feels that way. Right. And so like, it's, it's saying the way that you said in your, in your review, Jason, it like, it takes the best part of ourselves and it makes us into something that is, um, that is ugly and, and profit motivated and sort of like something that isn't worth being proud of or taking pride in. Right. And so I think that really works for me this time in a way that it, it maybe didn't always, because I, I had always sort of seen these two themes as, uh, coinciding, but not necessarily integrated. Um, but I'm, I'm interested to hear what everybody else thinks about that. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just provide an on-ramp maybe for that. I, I think, I think that's absolutely, um, like not that not that it was my own point or anything. I think it's probably a, a, a it's ob- observation people have had about this movie before. But like that direct marriage of those two things of like loving the labor, hating the work is pretty clear throughout. Uh, pretty much every uh, interaction Kiki has with people in this movie. Um, you know, she loves flying and she loves seeing others fly and she loves helping others fly. Right? She helps. She loves getting Tombow airborne with the help of her you know magic powers. Um, but then like obvious like like Aaron was bringing up earlier the uh commodification and commercialization of that the the blimp is just like an absolute disaster right it it, it is unsustainable um like you say the gig economy like you say uh you know the the marriage excuse me the um direct tying of her efforts to make money off of that to like the actual thing that she loves doing um i'm not sure if that adds color or is an on-ramp at all but i think it helps clarify some some thoughts that uh that maybe harry had there yeah, and I think it's it's not only just that she loves flying and then she didn't love flying when she had to do it for work, really. I think it's just that her self-worth is so tied up in flying and her ability to fly, and she thinks it's the only thing she's good for, right? She doesn't think she's pretty. She doesn't think she's particularly smart. She doesn't have any friends. Flying is all that she really has at the start of that movie, and then she loses it because of depression and because of not having any sort of community set around her. And so once she realizes through her friends um, that she has value outside of what she can, you know, do with this outside of what she can produce, what she's just a wonderful person that they like to be around, regardless of whether she can fly or not, it comes back to her, right? Because she is worth more than just her flying abilities. That's a really good point. Yep. That that Uh, is a wonderful point. And, And I love that. Like, you, you say flying is all she has at the beginning of the movie. It's also all she has at the end, right? Except like community and people to do it with and around, right? She's She's got somebody against whom to compare and like, rather than not compare, but like with whom to celebrate that, you know? Uh, no longer is she, um, well, you know, it, it, to an extent, like I think the the only other point that I had about this movie is like it doesn't 
she doesn't learn the value of hard work. She doesn't like learn the rewards of labor or anything. She doesn't expand her business and become a magnate or whatever. Not that she would, but like, I can't see a movie where she does that, but the fact that she doesn't and the fact that they're like, the plot is restrained enough to let the climax be before like the proof that she's got her powers back sort of thing. I think she realizes that that balance between work and life is always changing and that the core constants are going to be herself and like her love of the labor itself. Um, and that it will never be like an equitable split between uh, her work and her life. Um, but that those constants, uh, you know, those constants will remain. She will have to forfeit some element of personal satisfaction to succeed or to profit. And she will, or her business will suffer because of, you know, her um, indulgence in, you know, her lifestyle or whatever. Like, I, I think that the fact that it leaves us there in that uh, statement of balance is, is sort of like the magic of how this movie ends. I think it adds to the, 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 the poignancy of, um, you know, the fact that like, Again, the dirigible exploding is not like the most exciting or thrilling end of this movie because that's not really what the, like the point of the movie was, I guess. Um, you know, I think that's just supported by her, uh, you know, her interactions with the senior witch at the beginning of the movie. And when she gets to the surface, she realizes that she doesn't have very pretty clothing and she notices that one or two more times throughout the movie. And then by the end, she's still in the same dress. She's got a new, um, you know, broom by necessity that she's sort of adopted into her own, but she's not like, she doesn't become what she had hoped she would become because she's realized that there is a balance there that like, she does not need X to signify her worth or her interest or her, you know, exhibition of talent. Uh, she, she doesn't need nice clothing in order to have good friends. She doesn't need, um, to make a whole lot of money to work and be with people that she enjoys. I, I guess like that balance, that 50, 50, that fence sitting a little bit really works for me when considering like what the character has done over the course of the movie, where she has sort of found her own worth through, um, you know, recognizing how others perceive her through the external, I guess. Yeah. It's, I, I hesitate to use this um, phrase, but it's like, she's enough. She figures out that she's enough. Um, to Aaron's point, it's like she is the, still the person she was at the beginning of the movie. She just realizes the value that that person has outside of purely her labor in Charlie's terms, right? Like she thought that the reason she was special is because she can fly. The reason she's special is are it, the, she's special so she can fly, right? It reverses that. It says that like, Kiki, the reason why you're special is because you are the person you are. And that is also the reason you can fly. It's not that you can fly and that flight makes you special, right? Um, and so the reason I, I say I hesitate to use you are enough is because it's not, there's nothing enough about it, right? It's that Kiki realizes or comes to realize that she is amazing exactly the way that she is, right? And that there is nothing wrong with her to Aaron's point. Um, and that, that that is, has always been the truth of her. Um, did you want to say something about that as well, Charlie? No, just, yeah, it's a great point. You know, it's like she she is going to be enough with or without her flying and she can have her friends in her community with or without her flying. And her flying is just a way to fulfill her life, but it's not all who she is. Yeah, well, and, and Jason, you said something that I really loved about how she also helps other people fly, right? Like she helps Tombo pick up off the ground and she uh, saves Tombo at the end. And so like that is symbolic of of all that her flying represents, which is not just this commercial thing and not even just this personal expression, but it is the way in which her flying inspires everyone else. 
um, and allows everybody else to fly, right? Both sort of like literally and um, symbolically in the form of making paintings, in the form of um, creating your your aviation technology, in the form of uh, your bakery, right? It's like it, she realizes that her value is in the sort of like inspiration that she provides others in the in the love and community that she helps create with her delivery service and with all that it represents right and that's amazing i'm i'm maybe kind of just uh uh formulating some of this here but i i to to go back slightly to a point that that harry made um uh, probably five minutes ago at this point ten minutes ago at this point um was was about this film kind of connecting specifically with a a, a younger generation of kind of i don't know apathetic uh uh like millennials right um I, and i know that like whisper of the heart was the inspiration for like the the lo-fi girl uh the lo-fi hip-hop beats whatever uh uh girl there um and i know that like kiki is during a portion of this film like kind of reminiscent of that in a way right this this came out before whisper of the heart um i i do kind of that aspect of it uh i do kind of I'm just spitballing. I do kind of struggle with with um, thinking about that in terms of of my own understanding of Miyazaki as like a person and a director and somebody who, as far as I can understand, like devotes pretty much every single waking moment uh, to his work. Right. Um, I mean, he is like a, a workaholic on like a whole nother level. Right. Um, and it, it's. It's not like I'm not this is not like a criticism or anything, but I do kind of struggle to like balance my understanding on that end with um, Kiki's own kind of like apathy at, you know, having to to do what she really loves for work and how that impacts her throughout the story. I don't know if that's anything anybody can can. uh, That's it. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And like you bringing up Whisper of the Heart makes a lot of sense, too. Right. Because that is also like learning the importance of your work and who you are both to you and to your community is also kind of what whisper of the heart is the the problem uh in this movie as well as in whisper of the heart is it it actually like is not interested in telling you that that it's it's okay to like have a balance and not to work yourself to death the i mean the guy who directed i don't think miyazaki it, believes that yes no I, right exactly like i mean i think that kiki learns that sh- the work she is doing is important and she is good enough to do that work in this right like at the end she she discovers like flying is amazing it's inspirational it connects people and the heart of the community again and i am worthy of assuming that mantle and becoming that inspiration to everybody she doesn't she doesn't necessarily learn that like i don't have to do (laughs) this right i'm gonna deliver these packages so well unfortunate because like yeah like we had said like the, the guy who directed whisper of the heart literally worked himself to death he literally died making that movie because he was working so hard. And I, I mean, Miyazaki is not a, a person with a good work-life balance to the point where it has famously deteriorated many of his interpersonal relationships, including his relationship with his son, right? So, like, I think that that's a really good and maybe important point to make is that, like, that that is maybe a, a sort of a fundamental shortcoming here is that, like, Kiki learns that her value is not necessarily derived specifically from her flying. I don't know that she necessarily learns that she doesn't have to fly. <laughs> I mean, she does learn to fly at the end of the movie. I mean, maybe that's even what, what Gigi not talking is, right? But like, I think that like 
maybe maybe if she had like never learned to fly again and learned that that was okay, that would have been something. But like, that's not the movie that this is. And I think that's okay, but I, I do think it's something to talk about. Oh, come on, man. You got to stop doing that with the hand. I think that was still up from last time I was talking. I, yeah, uh, I know. That's never, what I mean. Never. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll just say I, I agree. I I don't even view that as a criticism, though. It just seems kind of like a, a cultural difference, I think, at a certain level. Yeah. Um, I mean, know, and it's sorry to cut, but like the the kind of what I talked about with Tombo as well, like it, I, I don't really view it as like Miyazaki putting forth this like, hey, just love your work, work 80 hours kind of viewpoint. I think that it is um, uh, his, his appreciation for genuine beauty that does exist. Um, with technology or with art, uh, uh, you know, kind of artistic struggle and whatnot. Um, I think he is, he is, um, interested in that beauty and the beauty in the natural world and how those things often, um, kind of come together. And I think other stuff, maybe he doesn't like as much. That's kind of what I take out of it. I mean, it, right. It is sort of, it's, it's frustrating to have to consider in the sort of like, hyper commercialization of our world that he he is arriving at something that is that is not directly capitalism capitalist critical because it's it's just sort of um to the side of all of that right like Miyazaki doesn't exist without his work I think he would say that he would say that like I am these things like much more than I am a man much more than I am a person I am an artist producing these things right and so like like we you have to like keep that framing in mind when you consider his opinions on passion and pursuit. Like I, and maybe this is me idolizing him too much, but like, I genuinely don't think Miyazaki's in it for the money. You know what I mean? It's like, I really don't think that like, if he wasn't famous, he wouldn't be making this stuff. I think that he's probably found his like raison d'etre in making this stuff. And like, I think that that is communicated through his work. It just so happens that like, it creates this weird, situation where it's like so are you telling us that when you're passionate enough and you love what you're doing enough you should be comfortable with exploitation and it's like no of course not he's not saying that what he's saying is that like you can love your stuff and like you that is what being alive should feel like right and like it sucks that it just so happens that in the specific industry that he's a part of that argument has been used to exploit people to their literal deaths but like you can be both you know what I mean? Like maybe maybe that's me being mealy mouthed about it, but like I really think Miyazaki believes, and like the the movies he creates believes that like you can really think that your work is everything to you in the passion sense, and that can be okay, and you cannot be exploited. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, there's yeah. it's a fine line, but I think I think he, his career generally rides it. Um, I've I have no real complaints or, or comment about that. Well, um, I mean, I, the guy who was going to be his protege killed himself working on a project. So, I mean, it's not, you know, like it, it's really not that simple, unfortunately, but yeah. it is something, you know, I mean, like I, I, I believe in it, right? Like, I think that, that my most actualized version of myself would be an artist, right? Would be somebody who's making something. And like, if, if we lived in like luxury communism facilitated by robots, I would, I would still like to think of myself as a person who is an artist as pretentious as that sounds. Right. And I, I think that's basically what he's saying is that like Kiki is like a, a, a flyer. She is, she is a person who does this and would do it regardless. Right. Like that's yeah, kind man. of his point. Yeah. It's the dream. 
Uh, I want to make sure we haven't left Charlie out in the cold on any final thoughts she had before we wrap this puppy uppy. No, I think we kind of covered everything. Um, yeah, but thanks so much for uh, watching this one with me and having me on because I love to get to talk about this movie. And I didn't watch it this year for my birthday, so it kind of worked out. So thanks. Of course. Yeah, we would love to have you on for, for more Ghibli stuff. Uh, I'm really hoping after some conversations we've had with John that we'll actually get them to play more anime. But um, before we sign off, uh, Charlie, tell me once again where people can find you all across the Internet. Yeah, um, I'm Charlie Mackin. You can find me on Twitter at, at CharlieMander13. Are you, you on Letterboxd? Um, I am, but I like don't really use it. You should use it more often. Everybody yeah, yeah. should follow Charlie to make her use her I like. I literally never do anything unless I'm going to write a review, and I write a review for like one out of every 20 movies that I watch. Yeah, uh, and, and we'll, we'll be looking box <laughs> We'll be on the lookout for the next one. Uh, but this has been our episode about Kiki's Delivery Service, featuring special guest Charlie Mackin. Uh, you can find our podcast, Trilove Podcast, at Trilove Podcast. Go figure. And uh, you can find the Trilon Cinema, which uh, plays the movies, most of the movies we talk about on this podcast, at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org, where you can get tickets and showings and. Uh, rentals and uh, merch and uh, concessions and all sorts of cool shit. Um, do it now while while you can and while it's uh, you know as safe as it's going to be for the rest of the year because I don't know that the world is actually getting kinder or better as we go. Uh, but you can find me. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis at Nintendoofus on Twitter. I've been Harry Mackin. If you want to look at a movie that is about Miyazaki's thoughts on the apocalypse, uh, Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind is a good one, uh, despite what Aaron says. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. Wait, wait, wait. He he fired like an opening salvo at one hour and 22 minutes into our podcast. I don't know if mm-hmm. you can do that, man. Yeah, we got to get this done before 125. But I like, I like Nausicaa. I just hold that if you put right down all of the Ghibli films, it is in the lower half. That's all I'm saying. That's a just anyway. Uh, my name is Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RV, please. Thank you.